0: All right, we will not be in Matthew, we will not be in Luke this morning, we are going to be in Isaiah and finishing up uh, Isaiah 53 here. Um, this passage here, the second half of Isaiah, so those have been in our Isaiah study on Sunday evenings, we've been... Going through this, we did a big overview, uh, broke down into different sections the, to start it off, and uh, talked about those, those two dividing sections. The beginning, of the first 39 chapters, is, is primarily condemnation mixed in, some consolation, and then you have the latter 27 chapters of Isaiah, which was more consolation, but still condemnation mixed in. So I'm going to begin here in, in reading, starting from Isaiah 52. Verse 13, so as always, take heed of the inerrant, infallible word of God as I read this morning. So verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. to his own way, and Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, Stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you that your word never returns void. Father, I pray this morning as I deliver this sermon that your words will cut deep to the hearts of those that are under the sound of my voice there's any discrepancy in the things in which I say, Father, prepare my heart for reproof, rebuke. Father, sanctify us. Regenerate those who do not know you. Father, may your son be glorified today. Pray this in his precious name. Amen. All right, so as I saw, there's these great parallels between Isaiah and the rest of Scripture. Right, we have the 66 chapters of Isaiah. As I said before, split into we see these two uh, sections of the first 39 chapters of condemnation. We see the entirety of Scripture, the first 39 books, the Old Testament. Primarily, Condemnation, laying out the law, laying out that, that, that none are righteous, no, not one. And then we see the, the latter portion of, of Isaiah, 27 chapters that provide consolation. And then you see the, the, the New Testament, the 27 books from Matthew to Revelation, primarily consolation. Can We have condemnation mixed in as well. So we see this reflection here, especially the second half of this reflection of the New Testament, and it's amazing. For example, Isaiah 40, the very first chapter of the the latter portion of Isaiah, begins with this prophecy of, of the coming ministry of John the Baptist. Chapter 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I was John the Baptist as his proclamation preparing Israel for the coming Messiah. So the New Testament begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And then you go to the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66. You see this, this marvelous revelation, this great hope, this great promise of the coming new heavens and the new earth. And you go to the end of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 21, 22. find this amazing revelation of the new heavens and the new earth. So then in Isaiah, right in the middle between chapters 40 and 66, right in the middle, in the very middle is this chapter, chapter 53, which highlights the suffering of the Messiah. The very heart, the very core of this portion of Isaiah's prophecy points directly makes a beeline right for the cross, right to Calvary. It's the cross of Christ that becomes the, the very message, the, the center of the entire scripture, but, but, but you know, highlighted in the New Testament. So this portion of Isaiah in, in many ways takes us through the, the pathway of the New Testament as it points to, to none other than Christ himself, the coming Messiah uh, who, who came to save not only the Jews, but, but also to the Gentiles. So Isaiah has been rightly called the, the fifth gospel for that very reason. And, and, and as we begin to, to look at this chapter here this morning, beginning in, in chapter 52, uh, verse 13, which is, which is, this is called the, the fourth servant song here throughout Isaiah. You see the first one in chapter 42, then one in 40, then one in 50, and then here in our passage this morning. So, what I'd like to do, this is going to be a little different here this morning. These guys the past four weeks have have laid the foundation, built the walls, and um, all the references to supporting scriptures of of Isaiah 53 has been laid out. So I'm going to stick primarily here in 53, so our heads are going to be down quite a bit, uh, following through, and we're going to be going through, again, the, in the entirety of this passage this morning, and what we're going to do, actually, is, it's going to be a little different, we're going to actually kind of approach this in like an apologetic way, not that we're to apologize, but apologetic meaning to, to stand firm on the faith in which uh, you hold, so to be able to give an account and so what we're going to do, we're going to, to interact and, and critique the Jewish interpretation of this passage. Because here's the thing, you may read this and be like, dude, how, how in the world does anybody interpret it any different other than Christ, the Messiah? And so that's why I want us to, to, to look at this and see how the Jews deny. Christ here in this passage, and, and as well as uh, you know, how, they, how they interpret it. So we're going to specifically look at two different interpretations. Um, here's the thing, too. Even us as Gentiles, we, we read this without the, the veil lifted, without the, the scales dropped from our eyes. It's just a, words on a page. But when the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of somebody, Regenerates their heart, takes their heart of stone, and gives them a heart of flesh. And you see so clearly this passage of the Messiah. So, if you read this passage, and, and the Messiah, Christ, does not lay heavily upon your heart. That's this morning that to, to, to not harden your heart this morning, I ask that those deacons, those, anybody who's just laid upon their heart to be in constant prayer this morning for those who do not know Christ that are sitting in his room this morning. All right, so I just begin here by by seeing how it is that the Jews interpret it and, and again, critique that. And I think it's going to be beneficial in, in two specific ways. One, to just solidify and clarify and affirm our current understanding of this being Christ here in this passage, who is the object of this prophecy, as well as, secondly, to help us understand and witness to, and I'm going to say this quite a bit, but both Jews and Gentiles, but specifically speaking of of Jews, um, anytime you run into someone who who follows Judaism, and this is the the passage that, that we can lean upon, and so a man named David Baron. Uh, he lived back in the 19th century. Uh, he was raised a, a very devout Jewish man in a very devout Jewish family uh, in Russia. He was trained up as a rabbi, and then he was miraculously and gloriously converted to Christianity. And he wrote this awesome commentary. Uh, for, for what I've researched and found out, this is the only commentary he ever wrote. and it was only on Isaiah 53. It's about a 60-page commentary and I encourage everybody to to cut a few hours out of your day and and read it. Um, It's a phenomenal commentary. And so this is what he wrote. This is what he says in that commentary. He says about Isaiah 53, this glorious prophecy of the suffering of the Messiah and the glory which should follow has been used of God more than any other scripture in opening the eyes of Jews to recognize in Jesus Israel's Redeemer, King. And so, this passage has has been used to, to powerfully convert Jews and, and yet so many, of course, just don't understand it properly. That's probably because this is an interesting thing, that Isaiah 53 is actually omitted from the Sabbath reading in the synagogues, And so, a, a normal uh, a Sabbath in the synagogue would, would go as follows. They, they start with the, the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. Right? Shema, Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Devout Jews will recite that twice a day. And then it would move on to a reading from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Parashah. And then they would read what they call the Haftarah, which is from the prophets. And then lastly, followed by a rabbinical commentary on the selected verses, which is called the Dresha. And so, as they are reading the, par- the Parashah in the Haftarah in parallel during the, the Sabbath, they read all the way up through to Deuteronomy, and, and while they're in Deuteronomy, they'll be in Isaiah they read, clean up to Isaiah 52, verse 12. And then the following Sabbath, you can guess where they pick up. Isaiah 54. Skip it completely. Completely skip it. Why do they do that? I'm glad you asked. It's because it's too dangerous. It is too dangerous. It so clearly points forward to Christ that it is such a, a powerful evangelistic tool they just skip it all together that's why most Jews don't even know of Isaiah 53 they're, they're unfamiliar with it it's too dangerous for them to read so they exclude it they, they ignore it altogether. Let's begin by looking here and examining the the Jewish interpretation of this passage and and see, like, how how do they understand it? So I'm going to break this down into two views. We have the ancient Jewish view, which would be, you know, Old Testament times, uh, biblical times, during the time of Christ's earthly ministry, and then the modern Jewish view. So the ancient Jewish view generally viewed Isaiah 53 as Messianic, as the Messiah. They didn't view it as being Christ, but of some other Messianic individual. You know, some of them also saw it as a reference to, to somebody in the past, like Job or, or Moses or, or one of the different kings. But majority of them saw this as the future Messiah. And again, they, they didn't see it as as Christ fulfilling it, but, but they saw it as a future coming Messiah in general. Then, 11th century, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Arashi. 11th century, about a thousand years after Christ. He would be the first one, the first one to give the, the very first official. Rabbinic interpretation that applies this passage to the nation of Israel, a thousand years after Christ. So instead of it referring to the Messiah, they interpret it and saw it referring to the nation of Israel. And that became the, the dominant interpretation of this passage. That's the, the view that most Jew, Jewish people hold today. So it's, how, did that, how did that become so popular? It's a question. How did it become so popular that, that they see this and they read and they're like, "Wow, yeah, this is the nation of Israel. This is us." Part of it is because they were well aware of the Christian interpretation as Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah. And then they didn't like that view. So they come up with a, a different view altogether. So also went along with their their general idea that the Messiah would not be a suffering Messiah, but a Messiah who would come and and, and conquer and conquer the, the physical enemies of Israel and then elevate Israel to, to the status above all other nations. That's what they saw as their messiah. So the idea of a suffering Messiah was, I mean, it was really repugnant to the Jews. So when they read Isaiah 53, they, they didn't want to, to see that of their Messiah. So they began to fixate on all the prophecies in Scripture that they spoke of the Messiah coming in glory, coming in, in, in victory over the enemies of, of Israel. And they fixated on, on that and ignored the prophecies where. Messiah would suffer. Kingston Berg, a scholar and commentator, he said this. He says, What they wanted was an outward deliverance from their misery and oppression, not an inward deliverance from sin. So they began to view themselves in Isaiah 53 as innocent sufferers. They began to ignore their own sinfulness and rebellion against God. They thought that all this was was pointing to themselves as a nation suffering unjustly by by all the the Gentile nations. So that's how they began to interpret this passage. So let's begin by by critiquing that view here and, and seeing, like, is the nation of Israel the one in view here in this prophecy? First off, Notice uh, chapter 52 here. You know, the servant will prosper. The servant will prosper and be, be high and lifted up and, and be exalted. Verse 14, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Verse 15, he will sprinkle, startle many nations. What you find is that the singular masculine pronoun here dominates throughout this passage. Dominates. Kind of 48 times, if I'm correct in counting, 48 times this singular masculine pronoun was utilized here in this, the entirety of this passage. That would clearly fit with an individual man being the one in view here. This type of pronoun is is rarely used, it is a few times, but rarely used of the nation of Israel. And also it's it's interesting to point out that that starting from Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, throughout the the rest of the book, throughout the rest of Isaiah, Israel is consistently referred to with a female gender pronoun, not a masculine gender pronoun. Pronoun, and that's typical for nations in Scripture, spoken of as female pronouns. So clearly, there's a contrast here. So Israel being referred to as a she and in a her, but this individual in this passage is referred to as a he, a him. So clearly, there's a contrast here that's that's intended. You go on, you look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He's referred to as a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. Not a nation of sorrows, but a man. An individual of sorrows. Verse 11 uh, the, the subject of this prophecy is it has a soul which speaks to an individual, not to a nation. It just doesn't fit on those grounds. Also, Israel does not fit the picture of, of, this, here, of this, this submissive, voluntary sufferer. Look at uh, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that was before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This does not fit with Israel. Not fit with Israel at all. Israel—it was very vocal. Israel was, is is very prone to revolts, and whenever they're being oppressed, they'll, they'll fight back. There's no picture in the Old Testament, no picture in Scripture where Israel becomes a submissive, voluntary sufferer. Her history is full of insurrection and and uprisings. Even when Rome dominated the nation of Israel, there was ongoing Jewish revolts. Constantly in there. There's there's no picture of them at all whatsoever being submissive, voluntary, suffering type way. Thirdly, Israel cannot bear its own sins. Cannot bear its own sins. Look at verse 5. And if the he here refers to the nation, then this is how this, this verse goes it goes. The nation of Israel was pierced for our transgressions. So what does that even mean? How could the nation of Israel atone for anybody's sins? Israel was guilty of their own sins. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy here in in chapter 1, beginning in chapter 1, starts with this incredible indictment. He says, children have I reared up and brought up. They have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In other words, they are full of sin. They are depraved. How, how could a sinful nation take away the sins of anybody else? It not be. You need a sinless substitute. And obviously the nation of Israel certainly does not fit that picture at all. Also, if you look down at verse 8, the third line there in verse 8, it's cut off out of the land of the living. The nation of Israel was not put to death as a nation. They survived today. The nation was not put to death. We see also later in verse 9, he was assigned to a grave. Again, you don't put a nation in a grave. It's certainly something that fits with an individual, not a nation. So the Jewish nation... It's continued to this day by, by the providence of God. And so they were cut off. They were not cut off from, from the land of the living, as verse 8 says. And it just doesn't seem to fit. Also, verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Can Israel be referred to as God's righteous one when they themselves are full of sin? It's a rhetorical question. This prophecy certainly doesn't refer to them in light of what Isaiah says about the nation of Israel. Also, how is it that the knowledge of Israel will justify anyone? doesn't make sense either. <clears throat> in light of all these inconsistencies, I think we have a, a good court case here built. Not just one or two. It's a lot of inconsistencies here in their interpretation of this passage. Well, the general opinion of, of Jews today is that this whole prophecy refers to the nation, the nation of Israel. There are some, there are some Jewish scholars and rabbis who say that, that this view of the nation of Israel here distorts the passage beyond its natural meaning. And I certainly agree with that evaluation. So let's walk through this passage and see I mean, I, how there is only one, only one individual, one entity, one object in all of human history that could fulfill this prophecy. And that is Christ. That is Jesus of Nazareth. So notice back in verse 14 of chapter 52. Here's where we're going to be. Our heads are going to be down quite a bit here probably. Um, Says you'd be disfigured, right? Verse 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Back in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's perfectly fulfilled in the gospel record of Jesus Christ. Perfectly fulfilled. He was flogged, he was spat upon, he was mocked. A a crown of thorns was pressed down upon his brow. His appearance was was marred more than than any man. Not from the beating, but ultimately from the wrath of God being poured out upon his body. eternal wrath that, that, that we owe placed upon him. It says that it pleased the Father to crush Him. It said it was His will to crush Him. It was pleasing to Him. How was that so? Like, think about those who have a child. Like, How could it be pleasing to crush that child? Upon that cross... Pleased the Father to crush him. Because at that moment, yes, he still saw his Son. But he saw us. He saw our iniquities. Our transgressions. Our sins. And the wrath of God was, was poured out on the Son as the Father's eyes was, was set to, to the sins of all the people who will ever believe. Whoever so it pleased Him. And so now those who, who have set their faith upon Christ as Messiah, as Redeemer, King, the Father no longer looks at those people and sees the wrath, the the, the, the iniquity that, that deserves wrath and punishment. Instead sees the righteousness of Christ. So I, so many so many folks love John 316, right? To so love the world, they gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John three thirty six, I think, brings the atonement into and in, in the um, wrath of God that that needs to be paid, the punishment that needs to be owed. In John three thirty six, he says something very similar in that of. Whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But, but those who do not obey the Son, what's I say. The wrath of God remains upon them. It remains upon them. It's not paid for. Christ only paid for those who believe. And that's a beautiful thing. Because it's not, the atonement wasn't just to make Salvation possible. It's to solidify it. All those who are His will come to saving faith. Great promise that we, we get to hold on to. Through all the beating that He received, His crucifixion certainly fits perfectly with the, the suffering of Christ. 700 years, 750 years after this prophecy was given in Isaiah. We also see, for example, in verse 2 of 53, came from a humble beginning. Read that he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground. Some interpretations say, uh, or translations say, parched ground. This is an expression of of humble and and promising beginnings of the Messiah. The the Jews in the first century were not looking for a suffering Messiah, they were looking for, for a man of renown, a man of royalty, a man of power, a man who could lead armies in the battle, and could overthrow enemies. They're looking for a man that was like David's three mighty men, all congealed and compressed into one superhero. That's what they're looking for. That's what they envisioned the Messiah to be, and yet the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus, came from humble beginnings. He was born of Mary, Mary, common girl Joseph, his so-called adopted father was a carpenter nothing spectacular there, no royalty there no indications of of a great mighty leader he grew up in Nazareth, a, a city that was a very poor reputation so this is not where they expected the Messiah to grow up from, but he grew up there in Nazareth. And you remember when when Nathaniel he he came to Philip in John chapter one, he said this he said This is Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth." Remember how Philip responded? He's like, "Can anything good come from Nazareth? Why? Because it's like parched ground, dry ground." It's not a city that had a good reputation. So, so how could anything good come from Nazareth? It's exactly where the Lord began His, his ministry. He goes on to say in verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. You know, the idea here is that Christ was not... Paul like Saul became the first king. He was not handsome like David. He was not powerful like Samson. He was not he was he was of average looks. He was meek, he was lowly. Nothing of what Israel was looking for. And I say that lightly when I say that he was not powerful. Very lightly. So in this sense, he matches perfectly the the description that he would come from a humble beginning. It would be like a root out of dry ground, out of parched ground. And in verse 3, he would be rejected by many. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Chapter 1 of John says of Jesus that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But they rejected him. They said later at the end of his ministry, away with this man, crucify him. While well, on the cross he was even mocked, blasphemed, reviled, rejected by those who, who walked by they sneered at him. They, they mocked him. Even those who were crucified with him mocked him for a period of time until God's grace penetrated the heart of, of one of those thieves next to him. So he was rejected by many. These people rejected him in general. And that's, that's true of Christ. That's true of Jesus of Nazareth. As we read in in verses 4-6 through that, that He would bear our sins and suffer in our place. It says, Surely, more sure than the sun will rise in the morning, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He would bear our sins. Not his own sins. He, he, he had no sin. He would bear our sins and he would suffer in our place. Substitutionary atonement. It's the testament, It's the, the, the testimony of the New Testament. Peter says in the second chapter of his first letter that, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This was liter- he, was, he was literally scourged. He was literally pierced through by the nails. As it says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. That literally happened upon the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. He would heal many throughout his earthly ministry. Christ healed people all over the place. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He raised people from the dead. He healed them from every kind of illness, every kind of sickness and fulfillment of this prophecy. Of course, this is not to say that, that, that all of our illnesses and all of our Sicknesses will be healed in this life, as the charismatics falsely understand. But it certainly speaks to the fact that on the cross, on the cross, Christ did atone for our bodily illnesses, which is a result of sin. Eat of the fruit and you will surely die. Sin, sickness, death entered into the world. But we won't receive the the fullness of that to our glorified bodies, when Christ returns, the day of of, of resurrection, our bodies are resurrected from the dust, and, and he will give us a body that is totally free from any sickness, illness, or disease. What a great hope. Two resurrections. There's two resurrections that'll occur. And the 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 resurrection into life. Which is the resurrection of life where we receive your eternal glorified body to be able to be in the presence of of God for eternity and worship Him for eternity. But there is another resurrection. Resurrection to judgment. Those people too will receive eternal bodies. Bodies prepared for eternal wrath. Prepared for a place where, where the worm never dies. And I... pray the understanding of those two resurrections will either shock you into life or shock you into an evangelistic thrust. As Spurgeon says, and I'm paraphrasing to some here, and if there's people, those that are around us are, are, are... our loved ones which should be everybody those who are without Christ are, are doomed to spend eternity receiving the wrath of God the wrath of God which we all deserve so Spurgeon says if they enter into hell make them do so leaping over our bodies Make them enter into hell with our imprints of our molars upon their ankles. Don't go biting people, please. Get the picture. He fulfilled that prophecy. He consummated it through his death, his burial resurrection. Well, While we are yet to receive our glorified body, it's been paid for. It's been paid for in full on the cross. That, that great eternal transaction between the Father and the Son. It's finished. Then we read that he voluntarily took our punishment. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And he volunteered. He didn't complain. He didn't fight against them. He freely gave himself to be crucified and to suffer for his people. He said in, in, in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For who? For the sheep. Verse 18 of that chapter says I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. See, Christ clearly came and voluntarily took our sins and punishment which we deserved. Who else has done that? Who else has done that? Today so many profess Christianity. So many just, we know that it's, it's way more than professing with our mouth, way more than repenting. There are two types. Two types of of people who profess with their mouth. They are Christians. I'll use this illustration. don't use martial art illustrations too often. This might be the second time. I think it draws a great picture. Say 12 people all together same day start a martial art. That first day, the instructor gives all of them black belts. I guess they're all black belts now. Day one. You'll have two types of people. You'll have one that's like, oh, I'm a black belt now. Sweet. Just gone. Don't ever see them again. Sometimes they'll pop in, flaunt their black belt around a little bit here and there. And then they're gone again. And you have the other. Receives their black belt day one. But yet spends the rest of their life honing and in, in learning and in, in, uh, perfecting this art. Knowing that they didn't even deserve the black belt in the first place. Because they're going to do everything they can To acknowledge and be thankful. And wanting to, to, to be that black belt. To pick up the cross daily. It's the difference between the two professing Christians. You have one who truly does not know Christ. But does not see the significance of his atoning work on the, on the cross. You have another that sees their own depravity, sees their own inability, sees their need for a Savior, and looks to the holiness and the loveliness of Christ. Verse 7 speaks to his silence. Silence during the suffering, and again, he did not open his mouth, though he was oppressed and afflicted, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he it did not open his mouth. The testimony of the Gospels is, is when Jesus was brought forward and was tried by, by Caiaphas, the high priest, and then, to, then before Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate. Generally, the Lord said nothing. Nothing but admitting to be the Messiah. So in no way did he try to accuse them or or verbally defend himself. He remained silent during the suffering. And they were amazed that, that he would not open his mouth, that he would not defend himself. We are told in, in verse 12 that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. Now, this applies in different ways to our Lord Jesus Christ. He was numbered with the transgressors, we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 36 and 37, where Jesus himself he, he uses this Isaiah 53, verse 12. He quotes it, and he applies it to the disciples taking up swords and, and carrying those swords with them. So in that sense, he was numbered among the transgressors from the eyes of the Romans. Here's Jesus with, with these disciples, and they've got swords. And they must be criminals. they must be guilty of all these things, all this stuff. They came to arrest them, and, and so he was numbered among them, numbered among his disciples, and all of them were, were looked upon as transgressors by the chief priests and later on by the Romans when Peter cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. It certainly contributes to the idea that, that Christ was numbered among the transgressors. It likely also has another secondary fulfillment than that of on the cross where he was numbered among the thieves, one to his left, one to his right, was crucified with these robbers, with these thieves. And look at the very end of verse 12. It says, makes intercession for the transgressors. That was literally fulfilled by our Lord as, as He prayed on the cross for, for those who crucified Him and mocked Him. said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Perfectly, literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's just amazing detail being fulfilled in only Jesus. And when it comes now to to verses 10 through 12, uh, there's a a reference to his ultimate victory, his resurrection. We see in verse 10 a guilt offering. That he would see his offspring. So, so after he dies, the idea is that, that he will see his offspring, his seed, and his days will be prolonged. And even though he dies, he will be prolonged. His days will be prolonged. The good pleasure of the Lord will, will prosper in his hand. So verses 10 and then 11, as a result of, of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, the Father. Then, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So, this anticipates and looks forward to the very resurrection of Christ. He would prolong his days and be exalted, he would be high and lifted up and exalted. We read of this in this passage, and, and of course, on the third day, Christ rose. He rose from the dead after his crucifixion and, and is still alive today. And he remains gathering his offspring as a shepherd gathers his sheep. Paul Washer makes a, an awesome illustration uh, of this in a sense, in that you have Christ, the, the mediator. Is, is both his hands up, and in, in one hand he's, he's holding back the wrath of God, and in the other hand, he's calling to his sheep, saying, "Come, come. You who are weary, heavy-laden, I will give you rest. Come to me. There will be a day when both of those hands drop. When the last sheep is gathered in, all who are left, the wrath of God will pour out upon them. Now, the Jews would say, you know, this can't, this can't possibly refer to, to Jesus Christ because Christ never married. He never had any children, so this can't refer to Christ. He had no offspring. Well the idea of seed in the Bible can definitely refer to, to physical, but in, in many, many times is referred to as a spiritual offspring, a spiritual seed. And in fact, throughout Christ's earthly ministry, how did he refer to his disciples? Many times as my children, my little children. Not biological, not physically, but spiritual children. So that's is the fulfillment. Of this particular passage. So many of his children live and breathe today in this room. Those who know Christ. Those who have a personal relationship with him. have placed their faith totally, solely on him. And his sacrificial death on the cross. Save us from our sins. And, and so those, those who have faith in him become children. Children by faith. Remember when our Lord was, was raised from the dead? Luke chapter 24. He appeared to His disciples and in verse 44. He says, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything was written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. I think David Barron is right. This glorious prophecy of the suffering of the Messiah and the glory which should follow has been used by God more than any scripture in opening the eyes of of Jews to recognize in Jesus His Redeemer King. He's the Redeemer King. Israel's Redeemer King. And as the the disciples in the first century, they, they preached Christ and they preached Isaiah 53, they preached Psalm 22 and all these other great messianic passages. Jews become... Started coming in coming to saving faith. They began to be numbered among the true spiritual Israel, this true spiritual seed of God. A true spiritual Israel as they repented of their sins and embraced Jesus as their suffering Messiah. The only servant who could take away their sins. Isaiah 53 has this, this powerful evangelistic witness, not just to the Jews, but to all. To all. We need to understand that and as God gives us opportunities to to share the gospel with Jewish people and make a beeline to Isaiah 53. Because most of them probably have never heard it. One final example here. You remember Acts chapter 8. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, he said, get up, go south to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza, he said, go, and he did what all obedient disciples do, he got up, he went, and on the road was, was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, a treasurer of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians down in Africa. He's apparently a Jewish proselyte because he came to Jerusalem to, to worship. So he was sitting there in this chariot and he, said, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip, he walked up to him. He said, he, said, he said, do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian said, how could I understand unless someone guides me? Philip got up in the chariot with the eunuch. Guess what passage he was reading from? Isaiah 53. This is what he was reading. He said, like a, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, tell me, who does this, who does this prophet speak of? Does it speak of himself? Does it speak of somebody else? In chapter 8 of Acts, verse 35, says this, And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he began to tell him the good news about Jesus. Tell the good news about Jesus. Not the nation of Israel, but Jesus. And that Ethiopian eunuch was gloriously regenerated. That free gift of eternal life. That never fades. Two callings here. Two specific exhortations here from this passage, if it hasn't been laid upon your heart already. Two specific exhortations. and, And we see Paul lays both of them out perfectly in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, he says. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have this exhortation here to repent and put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in the Messiah, the the Redeemer, Tells us to to make use of the time because the days are evil. Christ's return is imminent. That illustration again of of, of, that Paul Washer gives of of Christ, the mediator in heaven, with both hands up, should be a reminder of our, our urgency. Hearing these these two verses here in Romans, uh, this call to, to, to repent and put your faith in Christ. To call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Listen, it says today is the day of salvation, today is the favorable time. There's a time in which it's not going to be favorable. time in which when John says in, back to John 336 those so who are not in Christ the wrath of God will remain upon them heaven is, is preparing for this great and glorious day of Christ's return just just picture it the 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 white horses being saddled The leather being stretched across the drums. The great trumpet being polished. The faint sound of those drums in heaven echoing. All preparing and leading to that day where that great trumpet will sound. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the favorable time. Lastly, the second, next few verses in Romans 10 is the second exhortation for us today. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him to whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That same imminency for those who believe those who are Christ. It remains the same. That, that Christ will return. So, so what are we to be doing? Preparing. Preparing for the groom. As believers, when you enter into eternity, there are many things you will never do again. Sin being the primary one. The one, you will never, ever again get the opportunity to speak to an unbeliever. Ever again. Again, as Paul says, redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. And thus says the Lord, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all. let's pray Father we thank you for your suffering servant for sending your son to be the substitutionary atonement for your people Father, I thank you that it is not upon us. That our salvation is not anything that we can merit or gain. Because we know we would mess it up. Father, I pray that as we enter into communion this morning, that we do so with contrite hearts. That we do so through the lens of the the exhortation of this passage, we do so understanding that we fall short of your glorious standard. But you send your Son. Let us always do not rely upon the strength of the flesh, but on the power of your Spirit. So I pray that over the elements of this communion, that you set it aside for, for holy use. And that every time that we eat or drink, that we do so in remembrance of your Son Jesus. I will lift you up, we praise you in his mighty name. Amen. So as we enter into communion, um, for those that are guests, um, you do so at, at your own timing. Um, you can partake as a family or you know, individually at your, um, at your seats. Um, but again, always being reminding of 1 Corinthians 11 you know, and that knowing that we fall short approaching the Lord's table and and understanding that not that we're perfect, but if we are living day to day with habitual sin that we lavish or bask in and have no repentance for, allow that to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves before a holy God. And knowing that 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 uh, the communion is, is a means of grace, not in a salvational manner, but a calling to to lay those sins aside, put them upon Christ, who has already taken them upon Himself. And so, as are you guys going to play today, Elsa? Yeah. No. so and as they begin to play uh, again, in their own timing um, and then also join in and, and worship but again take the time in which you need uh, in communion so I'm going to pray again and then we'll, we'll partake in communion Father God we thank you for this ordinance of, of communion to, to always remind us the sacrifice of your son and also to the reminder that your son says that he will not eat or drink of this the fruit of the vine until we're together with him. That great promise that he's going to return. Lord, let us always be ready. Let us be like the bride preparing the linens and always having our lamps filled with oil and ready. Father, prepare our hearts. Father, renew our minds daily through your spirit, through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.